1: johnson's air also brought to you by naples illustrated bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles and you can sign up for their uh, on the town uh, subscription a weekly uh, edition of what's going on in the naples area in the uh, paradise coast of course there's not a lot going on right now as we'll find out later <clears throat> in our discussion <clears throat> We have a great guest for today's show, including Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute and a constitutional scholar. We'll be talking about how the Supreme Court has subverted the Constitution, and we'll be talking about the Commerce Clause. Also, a visit with Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. i will visit with uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture, He's written several books, his latest, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. We'll be talking about Bernie's second Soviet honeymoon, um, Marxist miseries, uh, talking about Larry's experiences in the Soviet Union versus what Bernie may have experienced on his honeymoon. It is March the 18th, and on this day in 1766, after four months of widespread protest in America, the British Parliament repealed the Stamp Act, a taxation measure uh, enacted, to raise revenues for a standing British army in America. It was passed on March the 22nd, 1765, leading to an uproar in the colonies over an issue that was to be major cause of the revolution, taxation without representation. Enacted in November 1765, the Controversial Act forced colonists to buy a a British stamp for every official document they obtained. The stamp itself displayed an image of a Tudor rose framed by the word America, and a French phrase uh, meaning shame to him who thinks evil of it. The colonists who have con- uh, convened the Stamp Act Congress in October 1765 to vocalize their opposition to the impending enactment greeted the arrival of the stamps with an outrage and violence. Most Americans called for a boycott of British goods and some organized attacks on the custom houses. And homes of tax collectors. After the months of protest and appeal by Benjamin Franklin before the British House of Commons, Parliament voted to repeal the Stamp Act in March 1766. However, the same day Parliament passed the Declaratory Acts, asserting that the British government had free and total legislative power over the colonies. That, of course, didn't go well, and we know how it all ended. Uh, With the American Revolution, of course, the establishment of the United States Constitution in 1789. Well, Naples has a new mayor and three new city councilors as challenges swept the citywide races, creating a new majority on the seven-member city council. Former Naples councilwoman Teresa Heitman defeated incumbent mayor Bill Barnett she received 55.6% of the vote, or 4,391 votes, to Bar- uh, Barnett's 3,502. So she won by 800 votes. I'm feeling the people spoke, and that's uh, this change is exactly what the has wanted, Heitman said in a phone interview. Uh, Barnett said he's disappointed with the results. I'm retired, he said. This, that's the end of that. I'm almost 80 years old. If that's what the voters wanted, then hey, uh, it's their city. I did the best I could do. No regrets, he said. Uh, candidates Mike McC- uh, McCabe, Ted Blankenship, and Paul Perry won four-year terms to the city council, edging out incumbent city councilors Reg Buxton, Michelle McLeod, and Ellen Siegel. Now, I'm just so surprised by these results. Uh, May be disappointed as well. Of course, these people are my friends, and I don't know the others well, but uh, I think city council was doing a great job. And what they're suggesting is that they're going to limit growth. It won't be another Miami. Well, it never was going to be another Miami. Just understand what all that talk was about. By Joe Biden easily won the Florida Democrat presidential primary with 62% of the vote. Bernie Sanders won 22%. He also won the Arizona and Illinois primaries, and that's Joe Biden. President Trump won his home state of Florida and Illinois in the latest round of primaries, making him the presumptive 2020 Republican nominee for president. Somewhat uh, everybody assumed it, but the Florida and Illinois uh, wins put him over 1,276 delegate threshold, which is what he needed. He's dominated the primaries, though, with record vote totals and unprecedented enthusiasm. He received in Florida 1,157,000 votes with 98% of the precincts reporting. That is huge. President Trump also uh, leads Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden in a battleground state of Florida. According to a new poll, in one-on-one matchup uh, Biden and Trump, the president takes the lead with 48% of Florida voters According to a Univision uh, uh, survey, he also has a similarity over, over Sanders with 49% to 42%. So let's talk about this COVID-19 virus, this coronavirus. The latest numbers here in Florida are 216 total number of confirmed cases, seven deaths in Florida, 58 uh, travel-related and 42 uh, cases, contact with confirmed case. So <clears throat> numbers are pretty small by comparison to the flu. Governor Ron DeSantis said students must remain out-of-school campuses until at least April the 15th. He made the announcement at a press conference Tuesday afternoon. He added that he and Florida Department of Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran were waiving state testing requirements for the school year and the requirements that a student must take the test to graduate or advance to the next grade. Uh, He also ordered bars, nightclubs to close at 5 p.m. yesterday. Droves of people have been uh, seen in footage circulated on visiting to a beach in Florida in recent days, despite warnings from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention urging social distancing among the uh, coronavirus outbreak. According to uh, reports, thousands of people have been seen descending on Clearwater Beach this week and over the weekend, even as health officials have asked the public to avoid large gatherings. So this, of course, would be the spring break crowd coming down and uh, It's so interesting that uh, young people, of course, are willing to take much more and larger risks than uh, folks as they age. The risk factor tends to diminish. Right now, it's concerning to me that uh, the way the population is, is, or, or the public and the government is reacting, they want to eliminate all risk, and, of course, that's just not possible. I'm trying to eliminate, of course, as much as possible. Uh, The coronavirus has killed 100 people in the United States, according to multiple tallies. Both CNN and The Washington Post reported Tuesday afternoon that the U.S. death toll hit the 100 mark. Uh, I'm going to say about 30, 40 of those are in Seattle, Washington. 30 of them are in in just one nursing home. Uh, The numbers of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is nearly 6,000, and at least 17 people in the U.S. have recovered from the contagious disease. Worldwide, there have been over 200,000 confirmed cases. Uh, President Trump has declared an emergency on Friday and to free more resources to spread the, fight the spread of the uh, virus. And the ne- administration is negotiating with Congress to work out packages. I think that negotiation is pretty well settled at this point. Now, the world uh, is at war with a hidden enemy. We will win, said President Donald Trump on Tuesday. Evidence, however, shows that uh, General, uh, Director General of the World Health Organization, WHO, severely overstated the fatality rate of the coronavirus, leading to the greater, greatest global panic in history. Globally, about 3.4% of reported COVID cases have died. By comparison, seasonal flu generally kills fewer than 1% of those infected. That was his quote. This statement led to the greatest panic in world history as the media over the world shared and repeated the coronavirus that was many, many times more deadly than the common flu. Actual results for the coronavirus are lower than the flu. President Trump was right when he said the WHO's coronavirus fatality rate was much too high. Evidence proves the coronavirus is not as deadly as what was reported by the who, and is continually repeated in the media. It's too bad. In fact, current data shows that it's not as deadly as the flu. The elderly and sick should be concerned and protected. Everyone else has little to worry about, according to uh, recent uh, statistics. I found this on the uh, Gateway Pundit. So interesting. Well, of course, stocks surged yesterday, rebounding from their worst day in more than three decades. As Wall Street cheered, White House plans that could inject a trillion dollars into the U.S. economy to cushion the blow of the coronavirus. The Dow is up about 1,048 yesterday, or 5.2%. That was nice to see after a 2,900-point reduction, nearly 3,000 points the day before. Futures, of course, are down right now. We'll see how this day ends up, but they're down about 810. Not moving much as I'm speaking here at about 710 in the morning. Uh, the Trump administration is weighing a fiscal stimulus package of more than a trillion dollars that includes direct payments to Americans. Uh, earlier, T- Secretary of Treasury Steven Mnuchin told reporters the government is considering directly sending checks to the Americans In le- in the next two weeks. They need cash now, he said. Minuchin added that corporations will be able to defer tax payments of up to ten million dollars, and individuals could defer up to a million in payments to the IRS for about ninety days. That's good news. Uh, good news for all of us, I think. Uh, nevertheless, he, he's absolutely right. Uh, people are out of work. Uh, we've talked to one young person who his hours were reduced to eighteen hours, and now he just the next day he was told that he's out of work because of a decision uh, by the uh, governor of the state. So uh, this we're kind of in crisis and Mnuchin said hey the unemployment rate could get as high as uh 20% if we don't do something. So he wants to, the president wants to send $1000 to every uh citizen to stem the effects of the coronavirus. I think it's a pretty good idea. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is NaplesIllustrated.com. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. He is the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Hardin, the host of The Bob Hardin Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lullaby's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly staff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulaby's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Ballshire Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community, thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees, The goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Golf Shore Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. back to the
0: Bob Harton show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can find out more by visiting the website, Playhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar. He is also the chairman of a terrific organization, the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: We are a libertarian think tank, headquartered in Washington, D.C., but closed for the moment, <laughs> given that uh, everybody's been told to work remotely, so all our employees are working from, uh, from home. And we uh, focus on free markets, private property, securing individual liberty, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. The website is fully functional
1: even though the building is closed. <laughs> uh, Cato.org, Cato.org So Bob, uh, last week we started our discussion about uh, s- subverting the Constitution, at least raising that question by the Supreme Court since the New Deal and we've uh, covered the taxing power. Let's talk about the commerce p- uh, power. Now didn't the Obama administration's originally claim that Obamacare should be upheld as a regulation of interstate commerce?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, A federal mandate to buy a private product, in this case health insurance, was unprecedented at the time and untested in the courts. It had been proposed in the context of Hillary Care, you know, back in 1994 at that time. The Congressional Budget Office wrote, and this is a quote, the government has never required people to buy any good or service as a condition of lawful residence in the U.S., And yet uh, that was precisely what Obamacare uh, purported to do. Um, And then opponents asked, where in the Constitution does it say that Congress uh, can do that? And according to the administration, the answer was uh, the Commerce Clause, the power to regulate interstate commerce. Of course, as we talked about last week, the Supreme Court ultimately decided that it was the taxing power that was the constitutional pedigree for Obamacare, and not the Commerce Clause, but the administration's claim is that it was the, the uh,
1: Commerce Clause. Yeah, they certainly claimed that. But has the court said uh, what has the court said about regulating under the Commerce Clause, and how did Obamacare fit into that picture?
2: Well, the, uh, the, the to understand that we have to define a few terms. Um, first, commerce. You know, commerce is the exchange of products, buying and selling. But there is also a broader category that's known as economic acts that affect commerce. Mm -hmm. That's much broader than just buying and selling. It also includes things like farming, uh, like mining, like manufacturing, uh, distributing goods and services, and also consuming goods and services. So if you think it's uh, self-evident that the uh, commerce power extends only to activities that involve commerce, that is, buying and selling, then, you know, you haven't been paying attention to the Supreme Court over the past seven decades. The uh, infamous case that we've talked about before, Bob, and Wickard v. Filburn laid the groundwork to expand the Commerce Clause beyond regulating commerce uh, to regulating all of these economic facts that affect uh, commerce. Uh, as you recall, Filburn grew wheat primarily for consumption by his own family and his farm animals. And then during the Depression, to boost the depressed prices of agricultural products, the Roosevelt administration decided that Filburn had to cut his wheat production. Um, and they told him to grow fewer barrels. And when he asked for constitutional authority, the government cited the power to regulate interstate commerce. And, and Filburn and noted that his farm was entirely within a single state, so it wasn't an interstate. And he didn't buy or sell the crops across any state lines. Uh, he, he grew the crops, and then he ate the crops, or he gave them to the farm animals. And the Supreme Court basically said, you don't get it, Philburn. Uh, by avoiding uh, buying, uh, you, by growing your own wheat, you avoided buying. And if you hadn't eaten everything that you grew, you would have had some left over that you could have sold. Uh, so by growing and eating and not buying and selling, you had an effect on the supply and demand for wheat, which when you consider it in the aggregate, uh, because a lot of other people are doing the same thing, undoubtedly there was an impact on interstate commerce. So, you know, with that kind of reasoning, it has sort of opened the floodgates, and yeah. then, uh, the regulatory state uh, poured through regulating anything and everything yeah. under this uh, rubric of the Commerce Clause.
1: Well, I don't want to mix uh, metaphors here, but it sounds like the animal farm to some, <laughs> to some uh, degree. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So what did the court say about limits on the commerce power?
2: You know, well, again, the original was you can regulate interstate commerce. Wickard says, no, it's not just interstate commerce. It's even intrastate, and it doesn't have to be commerce. It can be any economic act um, mining, manufacturing, farming, buying, selling, distributing, uh, consuming. Um, so, uh, 43 years later, after Wickard v. Silver, actually 53, 1995, uh, the court was asked to approve an even larger expansion of the Commerce Clause. And the question was whether the power to regulate commerce could extend to a non-economic act that is an act that didn't involve any of those things I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, The case was U.S. v. Lopez, and the court said no. There was a federal law that criminalized possession of a gun near school. Clearly a non-economic act, just possession. Uh, And the court ruled it could not be justified to regulate possession under the Commerce Clause. So the modern framework until Obamacare uh, was that Congress can regulate commerce across state lines. It can also regulate non-commerce as long as it's an economic act that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce, such as growing and consuming wheat in, uh, in the Wickard case. But uh, Congress can't regulate non-economic acts like mere possession of a gun uh, with, in the Lopez case. Yeah. But, you know, within that framework... The commerce power was very, very big, and I would argue certainly contrary uh, to the original understanding. You know, if the Commerce Clause authorized regulation of any activity with a substantial effect on interstate commerce, then why did the framers find it necessary to include a separate constitutional authorization to regulate, for example, the value of money or to establish rules for bankruptcy? I mean, both of those indisputably affect commerce. So if the commerce power extended to cover all of that, you wouldn't need those extra clauses. Uh, and then, incredibly, here comes Obamacare. The individual mandate says you buy, have to buy health insurance. It goes even further, uh, and it goes beyond commerce. It goes beyond the economic acts uh, to regulate, if the Supreme Court hadn't stepped in, to regulate things that are not acts at all. Because the mandate actually compels the purchase of a product, in this case health insurance, that was illegal to purchase across state lines. So under Obamacare, there was neither an act nor an interstate market uh, that existed to be regulated.
1: That's so interesting. So what's your view about uh, the Obamacare theory of the commerce power that uh, uh, was purported by the the, uh, people representing Obamacare at the Supreme Court?
2: Well, essentially, the insurance mandate, that is the requirement to buy insurance, is regulatory bootstrapping of the worst sort. Congress wanted to force you to engage in commerce and then proclaim that you can be regulated because you're engaged in commerce. So if if Congress could do that, it could do pretty much whatever it wanted. But in my view, and now, thankfully, confirmed by the Supreme Court, Even though the court did make a mistake in affirming Obamacare under the taxing power, they did not affirm it under the commerce power. So, as confirmed by the Supreme Court, even if Congress can regulate uh, Philburn's wheat production, that doesn't mean Congress can require me to purchase uh, bread uh, from my local grocer in order to subsidize wheat growers. Uh, And it can't require you to purchase health insurance to subsidize insurance companies so they can afford to cover... Pre existing conditions. So the new litmus test is economic activity. Uh, a mental decision not to buy insurance is not economic activity. So it's, it's no different than a decision not to work. Uh, neither decision can be regulated simply because uh, the non act, if it were converted into an act, might affect uh, interstate commerce. So the subject matter has to be economic in nature, must affect commerce, and must involve Activity. Uh, If a decision not to buy health insurance were an economic act that the government uh, could ban, then then ditto for other so-called acts, including others that are health-related, like requiring you to join a gym, Mm -hmm. uh, requiring you to exercise at home, or join Weight Watchers or diet. uh, Plainly, that can't be the state of the law in the United States.
1: So interesting, Bob Levy. I want to talk more about this. Uh, and we'll have to hold off for next week. I'd like to talk about Robert's opinion on this thing. But, again, Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit the website, Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. back to the Bob Harden show and now here's your host Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. We're not talking about single moms, we're talking about healthy single folks and uh, it's the right thing to do. You can find out more by visiting the website the f g a Dot org. Coming up, going to visit with Larry Bell and Dodd, professor at the University of Houston. Right now we have with us Andrew Joppa. He's a professor at Mercy College and author of a terrific read. It's called Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Good morning, Bob.
1: Good morning, Andy. So uh, I want to start off by just a uh, discussion of uh, election results yesterday and what's going on with the uh, Democrat and Republican primaries. What are your thoughts? Well, it
3: looks like Joe Biden has not only wrapped up the nomination, but actually may go into the, uh, the convention with a clear majority, thus avoiding a brokered convention. It's not definite, but it certainly looks like that possibility exists. There's a lot of pressure growing on, on Bernie Sanders to get out. If so, obviously, that would eliminate the brokered convention, and Biden will be their nominee. Uh, I would add, amazingly enough, they're trying to minimize the amount of airtime that uh, Biden gets uh, with obvious concern that, that he will have gaffes uh, be so serious that they might dislodge that candidacy on the way to the nomination. So, But uh, if, if we look at Florida, our state of concern, uh, there was good news and bad news. Um, Donald Trump uh, received 100,000 more votes than Joe Biden did, uh, virtually running unopposed. Uh, and yet, I think the bad news is that the Democrat turnout increased by uh, almost 300,000 from 2016, mm. from 1.7 million up to 2 million turnout. So uh, that turnout, I, I think, is a significant statement of uh, what I have been concerned with, which is the Democrat-Brown game generating a lot more registered voters. And uh, we might have been seeing that as the uh, as the amount that, that came out uh went up two to two million. So uh the good news and the bad news is the same thing in this in this case. Um it looks like um Biden is the nominee again. Um my concern for the um the Trump win in 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 November is is growing. I I still absolutely believe that that, that Trump will win this election. Uh, I just don't think it's as definite a situation as we might have described, uh, perhaps, a month ago. Um,
1: That's so interesting. I appreciate the commentary on that. Of course, uh, Trump is getting record results running against no one. In other words, Republicans are signing up and vote. Of course, you can only if you know, vote for Democrats if you're registered as a Democrat and so forth. That's how Florida works. But the number of people who are coming out to vote for him are unprecedented. And uh, so I think there's some encouragement, uh, encouraging news there
3: it certainly is there's no lack of enthusiasm for the, the the trump candidacy there's there's no doubt that he has retained that extremely strong constituency and i think that'll be carried into november uh but if we look at the the way that the media of course they continuously will do this is is dumping on the president as a derivative of the uh the covid-19 scare uh i think we're going to see a a continuing assault on this man that Will be unprecedented, even within the, uh, the, the the presidency of Trump himself. I think you'll see uh, an acceleration and amplification of the attacks on Trump, growing, growing enormously over the next few months, Bob.
1: In, in spite of that, uh, his popularity holding at uh, over forty seven percent, according to Rasmussen. So uh, his core, his, the I think the people who support him are committed and enthusiastic in supporting him. So, I mean, he's really taking a huge ass- uh, assault from the media, except for, <laughs> apparently one of the spokespeople from CNN said that, boy, this is what leadership really looks like. <laughs> and she ended up getting in a tweet oh, storm. Oh,
3: she, she is, I think that was Bash that did that. Um and, I, and she is just being uh, excoriated by, of course, by by the left. Anyone who says anything positive about Donald Trump yep. uh, is is going to be attacked and just rejected entirely by any, uh, all all others on the left, Bob. So you know, it's uh, it's an amazing situation we're looking at, where even the most casual comment in support of of Trump and the actions he's been taking uh, during the the COVID nineteen scare, uh, which I think have been just uh, just beautifully handled. Uh, to the large extent, I'm I'm not quite convinced that this nation has the money or the the resources to be covering all lost income during uh, during this process. We have no idea how long it will extend. Um, I think it uh, it's it's a calming uh, factor to suggest that. People's lost income will be replaced. On the other hand, we do not have that money, Bob, yep. uh, and we do not know how open-ended this situation will be. They're they're throwing around in the short term two weeks, but of course in the in the long term two months or more. So uh, to suggest that lost income is going to be covered, I think is just a uh, is a psychological bane. Uh, of course, uh, on the other hand, uh, I. I Doubt that we can sustain
1: that for any any long period of time. But all right, well, I just come. It comes down to I think life is full of risks. I mean, there's just a lot of risks. Uh, young people are taking greater risks by going to the beach on s- spring break and uh, so forth. And this is of course against the wishes of the president and uh, the state leaders and so forth. But uh, you know, to some degree, what we're learning is the the risk from co- COVID nineteen certainly is high for for uh, seniors. But uh, apparently there's uh, 83% of the people, I read some st- statistic, uh, have been exposed and actually have it, don't even know it, they were there, what are they, asymptomatic, I think is the word that's being used.
3: The populations that are not at risk, by definition, are not at risk. This is not a particularly virulent disease, Bob. Right. Uh, it is contagious, and that's a significant characteristic of COVID-19. On the other hand, it is not a... Uh, a virulent disease. If we look at the uh, the 30,000 deaths annually from, from flu, um, I, I think we have to put this all in perspective and understand uh, that uh, and by the way, with the flu, the the population at risk is is uh, against a far larger population. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID nineteen is for compromised populations and seniors who, by definition, have a compromised immune system. Uh, but this is not a virulent disease. It is a contagious disease. It must be seen with uh, with uh, re- reacted to with concern. Uh, on the other hand, our reaction is so hyperbolic, so uh, so overextended that. Uh, Uh, it's hard to imagine that this country could uh, consistently react this way uh, to every uh, health threat for this nation, Bob.
1: Absolutely. Andy, I want to talk to you about your thoughts on health care and education reform. Can you stick around? I will be here, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting
1: Network. House in this life transforming work, by patronizing the St. Matthews House thrift stores, Cafe M25, car wash and detailing center, and award winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthews House is a 501c3 not for profit organization and does not solicit government funding.
0: Bob Harden Show. And now here's your
1: host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And visit the website, GolfshorePlayhouse.org. Coming up we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us a uh, continuing the conversation with Andrew Joppa professor at Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good to be with you,
1: Bob. So, Andy, uh, you. Let's, uh, you know, with regard to the distorted numbers that we're seeing here with regard to coronavirus and uh, COVID-19, any additional thoughts?
3: Well, I have three blogs I published since last week, Bob, and the first is called By the Numbers. I've had a long lament as a faculty member and as someone involved with the the political process of the country. The the American people, to a large extent, I, I would classify as enumerate. Uh, enumerate is a, uh, something similar to illiteracy. It's the inability to understand the implication of numbers. In my blog, I use the example from the Naples Daily News with a headline on the front page. There was a 64% uh, increase in coronavirus and the, the numbers leaped forward. Uh, 64% sounds like a big number. It Certainly, it is a big number. But if we look at the real numbers, the underlying numbers, what it meant is the cases went from 14 to 23. Mm-hmm. In other words, there were nine cases uh, that increased uh, in the time period that they were defining. But they chose 64% because it's a manipulative number. It sounds big. Uh, it creates a larger sense of dread in terms of the disease. Plus, they a, uh, coupled with that, the use of the word, Leaped forward. It's a very active, um, right. aggressive verb, uh, as compared to move or went up. They use the word leaped. Right. Uh, so I've long had a concern with the the way the numbers are used, particularly percentages, as compared to the real numbers. And I think we're seeing a lot of that as it pertains to the uh, to the coronavirus situation. I alluded before to the uh, to the consideration that the uh, thirty thousand people die each year. Uh, from the from the flu and uh, there's a much more at risk population and yet those numbers, which are very ominous in themselves, those are real numbers. Uh, do not uh, have never seemed to create the panic in the American people. Uh, uh, the American people in general. Now these are of course general statements. They do not understand what the word possible means as compared to the word probable. These are these are numerical terms. Possible merely means not impossible. It has no statement of likelihood. Probability is an indication of likelihood, uh, and it must be defined by a number. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm using some specifics here just to try to give your audience a feel, uh, just a very brief feel, for the way the numbers are used to create uh, a, a uh, hyperbolic reaction to situations that do not demand that, and I think we've seen that extensively uh, extensively with the, the coronavirus situation. Uh, the other blog, my next blog after that, dealt with the uh, the process of creating reforms in certain areas that are the wrong reforms, and by choosing the wrong reform models, Bob, what you do is you don't solve the problem, and you actually, in many cases, deepen it. I used the example of, of education and healthcare care reform.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in
3: education reform, there should have been dramatic impact on the education system instead. We chose to go modestly into that environment. The reforms were, were, were minimal, the reason being that they were more so trying to protect the teachers, the unions, the administrators, the hierarchy, rather than actually improving education. So they didn't want to shake up the system itself. So instead of producing dramatic education reform, they went in uh, as minimalists and actually accomplished very little. I would say they've actually damaged the healthcare system. I'm sorry, the education system. Mm-hmm. In healthcare reform, if we go back to 2007, Bob, uh, they went in with a sledgehammer and took on a system that was a, a, a beautifully performing system. That is a system that just should have been nudged carefully, very carefully, uh, into maybe a, a more uh, effective form, but what they did, Bob, is they went in and they they tore that original system from 2007 uh, apart, and we're seeing now the end result of the chaos that's produced. So, in this, in the blog where I say why education and healthcare reform failed and why they will continue to fail, it's because the reform models were absolutely wrong. If we take that now and carry all of that. Uh, that logic of numbers and uh, how the process of of, of of reform or change or dealing with problems uh, can be wrong to the point of damaging the process more so than helping it, we can get into COVID-19. In COVID-19, we have had a totally systemic implication for, for the reform process. Every American, to a certain extent, uh, greater or less, but every American uh, has been infected. To me, Bob, from my perspective, and certainly this this could be debated, what we should have done was taken the at-risk populations and asked them to self-quarantine. Right. Uh, if we had kept those populations safe, if we had limited access to the uh, to the nursing homes, if we had uh, in, in every way possible ensured minimal contact with the uh... with the seniors with compromised immune system and those were that who were compromised at any age because of respiratory problems we could have dealt with this problem in a in a much more meaningful fashion i'm not suggesting the problem is not an important problem what i am suggesting entirely is uh... to almost uh, move our economy into recession uh... to produce the panic and the the displacement that this has done Totally inappropriate for the nature of a of a of a disease that has uh, a limited a lethal impact. Uh, and certainly is not going to cause anything resembling the deaths uh, that were caused by the flu, is caused by the flu in every season. Yep. Uh, in my blog, I point out that there were 1.6 million deaths from tuberculosis in 2017, and no one seems to even care about these these numbers, Bob. Uh, so I think this is a situation that is it's hard to push back against. I, uh, I think the president is finding that as difficult, if he was to even hint, that there's anything less than an appropriate and uh, absolute response to this, I, I think he would be excoriated. Uh, uh, certainly, that that's true, even if he's absolutely correct in everything he says. So, <clears throat> if we look at all of this as it as it ties together, we don't understand numbers, we don't understand possibility and probability, or we don't understand the reform process. And in COVID-19, I think we are in danger of creating uh, a, a an economy. Uh, and the displacement among the ap- American people that, and I might add, if Trump loses in 2020, I do not think there's going to be a, uh, a profound recovery uh, if we move now into recession or even depression, uh, as we have several quarters in a low with a, a reduced GDP, box. So um, that's sort of wrapping uh, my writings for this week up. All of it tied into the, uh, the coronavirus uh, response. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't. I am suggesting we should have done it better, with less panic, with less cost and with less anxiety
1: for the American people. Yeah, and you know, I I agree with you, Andy, and uh, I think looking back we'll see that this has been an overreaction to the situation, and I would suggest that the number one question asked should be, what is the role of government and what should be the role of the individual? And based on the comments that you've made, I'm suggesting that uh, people should be held accountable for their behavior. So we, I think, self-quarantining, telling seniors that, hey, you are vulnerable to this, you need to Protect yourself, and then uh, giving suggestions of how they can do that is far better than saying the whole nation has to close down businesses and so forth. I think you're absolutely so. If-
3: There's nothing that can justify the, the the response that we've made to the to this coronavirus. And if we're followed up with a uh, with a flu season someplace in this any place during this year, I I, I fail to see how we'll ever remove ourselves from the uh, from the the constant health threat that the the media. I believe, is is foisting on the American people. Yeah. Uh, this is a situation that I I don't think can be completely removed from uh, a continuing attempt to damage Donald Trump. It's, it's hard to imagine that uh, there could be a conspiracy so global that it would have done that. But uh, on the other hand, what we've seen over the last three years is a continuing uh, fabrication of of situations to damage the president and i can't help but feel that in some way in many ways at least uh, the the COVID-19 situation is tied into that continuing process.
1: Uh, I so much agree with you. Andy Joppa, again, I'm going to be, uh, be posting a couple of Andy's blogs on my website. You can find it under Correct Me If I'm Wrong. There's a pull-down tab at the top of the website that you can find uh, Andy's columns, all worth reading, all very provocative and interesting. And I might add right on as well. Andy, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: And thank you, Bob.
1: My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Professor Larry Bell, Endowed Professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. He's also the author of his latest book. He's written seven, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. We're going to be doing that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. (laughs)
0: Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a great organization, and I proudly serve on the board. I hope you'll check it out. It's the FGA.org. The FGA.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Professor Larry Bell, a Dodd professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books. His most newly released book, it's Cyber Warfare. Targeting America, Our Infrastructure, and Our Future. Professor, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Bob, for having me
1: on. And, Professor, can you hear me?
4: I can, yes, thanks.
1: Okay, great. So, uh, Professor, um, you just wrote a column yesterday about the COVID-19 and uh, some of the warriors that we have that are supporting the effort to keep us safe. Uh, could you amplify a little bit on that?
4: Yeah, Um at this time, you know, this is a very difficult time, of course, for the country and the world. I was thinking, particularly, I uh, I had a medical checkup, just an annual checkup, with my doctor, who's in his seventies, you know, and uh, just a week or so ago, and I asked him if he was worried about the, you know, how worried he was about being at risk on the coronavirus, because of course, doctors are nurses and healthcare workers are on the front line. And basically, he kind of stoic- stoically said, well, you know, it comes to the job. This is my chosen profession and so on. But I think all of us, you know, and I see pictures of people, you know, the medical helpers who are wearing masks and so on. And they're pushing swabs in people's throats and, and really exposing themselves. And how heroic they are at this time, uh they're really putting themselves in harm's way. And and um, at the same time, you know, we're seeing cl- school closings and daycare centers closing and so on. A lot of these healthcare workers have children. Yeah. So they're doubly burdened um, with the conflict of working, you know, these hours, doing these things, and then having children that need help. So uh, <clears throat> I think it's. I think we we owe them so much for what they're doing.
1: Absolutely. And and another take on that, too, is that uh, we tend to amplify the importance of the risk for coronavirus and COVID-19. I mean, we have things that are happening all over the world. Um, Your book, for example, Cyber Warfare Targeting America, Our Infrastructure and Our Future, talks about real threats that are perhaps as significant, more significant, maybe, uh, maybe not as urgent, as uh, as the COVID nineteen, so that you, as you're absolutely pointing out, we have these warriors who are supporting us and doing their jobs in spite of the risks that they're facing, and uh, we should be eternally grateful. But we should also be aware that get things in perspective. I think things are a little bit out of perspective right now.
4: Well, you mentioned you mentioned the cyber warfare and and uh, you know this um, the virus and you realize how, how wired and connected we are to the world now, where you can have a you know, live animal market in the middle of China somewhere, and, and months later, it break, basically collapses the world economy, and, mm-hmm. and and you see how, you know, with air travel connecting us, and and with now with the Internet, of course, everything, and uh, uh, we're... You know, we're we're at risk of, of the of the global influences. We you know we can't really isolate ourselves very effectively, and when we try, you know, the airline industry is collapsing, and and uh, we really have become a, a world community, both for better and worse
1: a great point i'm i'm also seeing the importance of being a national community uh and, and having our own response to our own problems right now i mean in the president i mean you can see how this whole thing ties together everything from financial markets to the economy to the dealing with covid-19 dealing with the issues that you write about in your book yeah it all ties together and the president said look i'm asking you to do four thi- four simple things for the next 14 days I mean, uh, when I thought about it, I said to myself, you know, that's the least I could do to be supportive of what he's trying to accomplish here. So, I think you, we all need to take some, in somehow, some way, some responsibility. But also, I think you know, the whole notion that we have borders, all of a sudden, that's becoming extremely important. You don't know, find You don't hear? Well, actually, you did hear. Joe Biden said, uh, or uh, Bernie Sanders said, uh, we're going to get rid of the uh, the border control. So it's, it's uh, I guess my point is that uh, we, we have to respond, it ties us together, but we're responding here as a national community as well as a global community.
4: And now we hear, you know, the concerns that Mexico right across the border mm-hmm. isn't taking precautions.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: You have, you know, have large musical events and so on bringing tens and hundreds of thousands of people together and basically and there's, you know the corona is taken is taken root there as well now, and you can imagine if it gets into the community of you know the the, the groups that are that are threatening, you know, challenging the borders. And uh, you know, a we can certainly I think it's going to make us more cognizant of how important it is to have borders and walls.
1: Mm-hmm. But
4: it's going to be very hard to contain again, um, and. That's a, a concern at a time when they're saying, "Well, we should allow everybody in and give everybody health care and so on." And in, in Italy now, I hope we're not Italy, but I just read—you know—they're, you know, they're, you know they're, if you're if you're in intensive care with pneumonia and you need a respirator, but you happen to be 80 or over, forget about it because you're not going to get a respirator. They have to do the kind of triage. Well. You know, I'm 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 over eighty. Yeah. So my Larry, you know, and so <laughs>
1: you
4: know, it's it's these are wrenching decisions that you have to make. And I I'm I'm glad we I think we have leadership and it's and I think it's important that the President Pence and, and his key people are giving daily reports and so on. I don't know what more you can do. it's really up to us now and yeah. and we're cocooning in our family, so that's
1: about all we can do. It's about all we can do, and it, and uh, again, this is uh, such an interesting time. You see the financial markets, right now the futures are down about 800. We had a good day yesterday in the market, but uh, there seems to be no, there's so much volatility in the market and with so many unanswered questions. Uh, and young people. I mean, they're, they're people who are waiters. They're out of work. They, you know, uh, people who are in, in service uh, positions. They're out of work. People are. Uh, we're going to have unemployment go through the roof if we don't get this thing solved.
4: We're doing. You know, the restaurants in Houston. Uh, we're going to we're going to support the takeout as much as we can mm. to uh, kind of hold. Leaves you know, alleviate some of the strain on local restaurants that we used to frequent, and try to help them out in that regard. And also gives us a little bit of a variety as well. But it's going to be transformative in terms of how we live. I think you know, I'm I still teach,
1: mm-hmm. and so
4: I'm going to be skyping for the first time in terms of teaching. Oh, you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so it's not the same. It's not the same, but I think we we're now going through a very transformative period where more people I think will start telecommuting and so on and that's going to become more and more the norm
1: and and that may be one of the one of the bright spots one of the positives that comes out of this whole thing is that uh, perhaps in education and so many other ways we're able to reduce costs by not gathering more we can gather together but it doesn't have to be as frequent as going into work every day for example
4: well I think a lot of these things like Tele, you know, <clears throat> telecommuting and telemedicine and I guess telelearning and all these things, as I wrote in my book, they're all happening anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think this is going to give them a huge push. Yeah. So that it becomes much more a sense of normalcy because I'm I'm doing the the tele teaching for the first time, and I can't help but believe that that this is just going to accelerate both in I mean, in good ways and in bad ways. I can see a lot of benefits to education where you can you can take courses from any university. Yeah. And and the best the best universities in different areas. And so there's there's certainly a plus and on the other hand you yeah, you you lose some of that personal interaction you have with the students and that's important too. So
1: so, yeah but I, but I think that's the
4: way we're going in any
1: case. I mean, and think about how that can reduce uh, student costs. Uh, there's so many benefits to telecommuting. I mean we we can't lose that personal interaction. We all need that. We can't live on computers, but Uh, Some good things can come out of this. Again, Professor Larry Bell, uh, the name of his latest book, Cyber Warfare, Targeting America, Our Infrastructure and Our Future. Very ominous title, well worth reading. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Bob, thanks so
1: much. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Uh, We've got scheduled uh, Keith Flaw, the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Byron Donalds is our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And I have Bill Barnett scheduled. I hope he'll come on. I'm sure he's disappointed in the election results, but we would love to hear from him as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.